90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, pretty good. Tired, just got back from the field, and so that's always a fun weekend. Yeah, we had some, some conversation on Twitter, and you were posting some pictures, but it looked like you were... I, I guessed you were in the hunting, but that was incorrect. It was incorrect, yes. <laughs> um, we were in the middle of Missouri <laughs> um, looking at the Great Unconformity, which we're going to talk a little bit about on the show today. Um, and it was super great because, you know, sometimes you get people pull over and ask what you're doing. And sometimes you get pulled over by policemen and ask what you're doing and stuff like that. But this time it was great. awesome. <laughs> yeah, you've you've witnessed some of this. Um this car pulled over <laughs> while we were sampling, and they pulled over next to my graduate students. And I was like, I'm going to let them handle this. They need to understand how to handle this. And so I just went back <laughs> to work. And it turned out to be this, like, 80-year-old retired Missouri State geologist who wound up having his field bag with him and pulling out all these beautiful handmade geologic maps whoa it was so cool it was so cool he talked to us for like half an hour about all this stuff and he just he whipped out these maps that he had done and they were just old topo you know 14 and a half quads and he had colored them in with colored pencils himself they were beautiful it was the best interaction i had with someone stopping and saying what are you doing here yeah, normally we instantly kind of have to go on the the, the slightly defensive. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. Like, oh, we have a right to be here. This is a public outcrop, you know. Um, it was amazing. It was so great. Um, and then the next day, we actually, we were sampling, and these three vans pulled up, three big white vans, and we're like, okay, those are geologists. <laughs> and they were from Wittenberg University in Ohio, and so they stopped, and... Had a great talk at the outcrop. We were there. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, it was a it was an interesting field weekend. Yeah, sounds like it. So, <laughs> it, any, did any progress happen uh, on your magnetometer woes back in the lab while you were out? I mean, I hate to say it because I don't want to jinx anything, but I think it's alive. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I spent the morning this morning. Um, looking at what got done um and it looks like it might be working so i'm very cautiously excited so are you gonna try to run some samples in it <gasps> oh, that's scary john <laughs> it's been a long <laughs> time um yeah i think so i think so um i think we're gonna start running probably by wednesday wow and i say wednesday because we're recording early this week on monday because of you Yes, so it it does feel like we just did this because we did. Uh, <laughs> yep. <laughs> but we are recording early because I am going to be out in Boulder yet again. <laughs> for for good stuff this time. Well, good stuff last time too. Well, but, that is true. Yeah. Uh, but less stressful. Well, no, it's probably not less stressful. Never mind. <laughs> well, I think we can safely announce now that in January, I will be moving to Boulder to take a position at Unidata as a software engineer. Yay! Yeah. So I will be writing software for geoscience. Um, it's really crazy. Did you ever think you'd wind up back in meteorology town? <laughs> uh, no, I didn't really. <laughs> <laughs> yep. 
<laughs> yeah, so still doing geoscience, still writing lots of software, but in a little bit different of a setting, and it's something I'm looking forward to. Oh, yeah, me too, because Boulder's expensive, so it'll be nice to have somewhere to stay when we go out there. <laughs> oh, we can't afford to live in Boulder. Uh, <laughs> oh, that is true, that is true. Who can? <laughs> it's true, but it is going to be a gorgeous place. When I was out there for the interview several weeks ago and driving around, there is so much great geology out there. There's oh. so much great weather that occurs out there. Yeah. It's going to be a real paradise uh, in terms of show topics <laughs> yeah, that, <laughs> and yeah, things that I'm actually going to be able to go look at and come talk about. I'm definitely going to make fun of your tiny tornadoes, though. Sorry. <laughs> it's true. Uh, but <laughs> and the lack we will of also... earthquakes. It's we just, true. We <laughs> yeah. Just a, yeah, we had another big one last night. That was pretty crazy. Uh, but there are, you know, a lot of really great outcrops and things around there, and it's relatively close to the field camp as well. Yeah, it is. So it's... I'm I'm familiar with some of what's there. <laughs> we can always learn you up on the rest. Not a problem. <laughs> well, you know, I'm mostly familiar with what's, you know, a few seconds seismic travel time or a few nanoseconds GPR travel time down. But... <laughs> <laughs> oh, Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that's that's super exciting. And we plan on having the show keep going uninterrupted uh, <laughs> in the chaos of moving. Fingers crossed. That might or might not happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, th oh. There might be a replay week sometime in January if I have no idea where my microphone is. <laughs> <laughs> you carry that stuff on. You carry it on and you keep it with you all the time. Come on now. Right. <laughs> a lot of these um a lot of these roadside stops uh now have wi-fi john so there's no excuse to not not record there you go <laughs> <laughs> it's been an exciting uh, week for us in the podcast too we got a ton of feedback over the last couple of weeks oh we did we did we've had lots of great comments folks suggesting fun papers people saying they just really enjoy the show and to keep it up a reminder that when you write in you can get stickers so <laughs> if you would like yeah. show stickers you should send us a comment that's right uh and it makes us feel good so thanks for that <laughs> yes uh, <laughs> and we actually got another audio comment from listener bart who directly addressed something that i said which was i've never used the prefix hecto except <laughs> in terms of hecto pascal i mean yeah in our defense, we haven't, but, you know, we weren't looking broadly enough. Um, but this was a great comment because we learned a lot from it, too. It is. So we will let Bart tell you about the other uses of Hecto. Hello, Shannon and John. For a couple of weeks, I wanted to leave a voice comment. Somebody else beat me to it, obviously, and that triggered me into really making it happen this time. First of all, I want to thank you for your show. I really enjoy it. And I'm sure you get a lot of compliments from your mom. And now you get a compliment from somebody else than your mom. So job well done. Second of all, I want to thank you. As a non-scientific listener, I would never have thought of programs like Matplotlib, which because of the show I got into. And because of that, I'm now analyzing my data with Pandas as opposed to Excel. And Pandas, as John probably will agree, is a whole lot better for those kind of things. Now, onto this week's show, which was about air pressure. Shannon started with saying that the word hecto was never used. First of all, 
Dutch meteorologists, at least the one on TV, do use the term hectopascal as opposed to millibars. Probably because we're more into the whole metric thing. Second of all, hectare actually stands for hecto-air, an air being an area of 10 by 10 meters. Yes, in the metric system we do have our arcane areas of measure as well. Although at least an air is 10 by 10 meters and not something like 9.5 meters by 35 and a quarter meters or something like that, which the imperial system seems to love. I think in land measurement they have whatever area it is which is measured by eight and a half rods and chains and those kind of things. But I digress. And then there's of course the hectopoles that we have along the highways, which are little poles that show the distance on the highways as referred to 100 meter poles for obvious reason. If that doesn't convince you, Dutch, brew, Dutch beer brewers will measure their production in hectoliters. So hecto is definitely not some arcane prefix that is never used, although not that common either. Um, finally, you mentioned the um, density air altitude and one of the things I found interesting in aeronautical world is when you measure airspeed, a very simple way is of course a, a tube with a hole in it and then you get the whole Bernoulli thing. The downside of that is that you get something which is called indicated airspeed, which tends to differ with the altitude. I always thought that's very inconvenient, but what I learned later is that indicated airspeed is actually very useful because all those things that apply to your airplane, like the lowest speed before you stall and the highest speed before the air rips your plane apart, those can always be expressed in indicated airspeed. As you get higher, the air gets thinner, the actual speed that your plane can sustain is going to be a lot higher because the pressure is lower and your indicated airspeed is also going to be lower. Those two seem to be cancelling each other out. So for aerobatical maneuvering and those kind of things, indicated airspeed is very useful and it kind of offsets the whole pressure thing. I thought that was a fun fact to know. Anyway, thank you again for the show. I've learned a lot from it. I continue to listen. Keep up the good work. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks for that comment, Bard. Uh, we definitely learned quite a bit from that. Yes. <laughs> so who knew there were so many uses for Hecto. We did not, obviously. We did not. <laughs> but uh, so on to this week's show topic. This is something that you said you were in the field looking at and something that geologists love to talk about and probably I would say have a love-hate relationship with. Yes. <laughs> because unconformities are kind of the eraser of geologic information. <laughs> uh, exactly. Um, so we want to look at rocks and be able to talk about geologic processes that went on, how old they were, what was happening with paleoclimate, all kinds of stuff like that. But when you have this thing called an unconformity, it's basically the absence of rocks and they stink. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're really interesting though, which is why we're having a show about them. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I think we need to go back to kind of the, the process of making a sedimentary rock before we get into unconformities and what they are, right? Right, exactly. Um, I was trying to think if we'd really done sort of a rock cycle so show, but I guess not. So I, 
I don't think so. That's something that we we should do. Yeah, we probably should do that. But <laughs> the the quick sedimentary rock primer is that as their name implies, they come from sediments, but they can actually be deposited in two ways. So it can be little chunks of other rock that settle, and that would be a, a clastic sedimentary rock, mm-hmm. or they can actually be deposited through a chemical process. Right. So like limestones or evaporites, which are exactly what they sound like, um, sort of salts that get left behind when seawater evaporates, stuff like that comes precipitates directly from seawater. And that's still a sedimentary rock. So you've got those two different kinds. But in terms of this, all we're talking about is either way, sedimentary rocks get deposited. But I would say unfortunately, but no, fortunately, that isn't the end of the story. I was going to say, this keeps you in a job. That's exactly it. (laughs) Yes, yes, that is true. Um, So lots of things can happen to them, I mean, to any rock, after they get deposited. But how does the deposition of these things work? You know, like, is a river constantly raining down sand inside the water column and therefore constantly depositing things? Is that true? Are there... Well, I mean... I mean, on, on what time scale? <laughs> it, okay, see, exactly. So you've already got a question about it. And yeah. you haven't said anything except for river deposit. Um, so, like, is this constant? I, sometimes we assume so, and that's probably not a good idea. Um, and the big deal is, is there ever time missing? You're looking at this big chunk of sandstone. It looks like a big river channel. Is there ever any time missing in that big chunk of strata? Right, so yeah. we would we would assume that as we get more to the top of the section, that we're getting younger at some kind of semi-constant rate or maybe a rate that changes every now and then. But this is like, you know, reading a book and then there are three, four pages missing. <laughs> right, or half a book missing in some cases. Um. <laughs> it's, it's, it's true. I guess it depends on the size of your unconformity. But just right. imagine ripping out, you know, some center section of one of the Harry Potter books, and you can imagine how geologists feel. Uh, yes. Oh, man, that's going to make me even more depressed when I look at them now. <laughs> um, so, so, right, deposition isn't a constant process, and so, therefore, in sedimentary units, we get these things called unconformities. And basically, it represents where you're not depositing or you're eroding. And we'll get into that uh, here in a minute, but I wanted to talk about one of the most sort of famous unconformities that maybe a lot of our listeners, we know listener Hannah for sure, knows about, and that is Sicker Point in Scotland. So yeah, Hannah's actually sent us some pictures sitting on top of the unconformity at Sicker Point. (laughs) Right. Um, So Sicker Point is east of Edinburgh in Scotland, and James Hutton, I don't know if we've talked about him on here, I'm sure we'll have a history of geology show, but you can't get away from the history of geology without talking about Hutton. So he was one of the fathers of sort of modern geology. And in the late 1700s, he was sitting there on the shore in Scotland and noticed that there are these tilted beds of these sandstones and shales. And these are really tilted, like 80 degrees or so. And they're these grayish sort of sandstones and shales. And then directly on top of them are these red Devonian sands, the old red sandstone. It's famous throughout... um, throughout Europe there. So you've got the old red sandstone at maybe 30 degrees on top. So if you're picturing this, if you haven't looked at the pictures, um, you've got 80 degrees and then on top, it's kind of like a handkerchief laid on a stack of books or something. Um, 
at 30 degrees, this different color, totally different aged sand. Yeah. So, I mean, you could think of this as, you know, when you run out of space on your bookshelves. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you start stacking things in a different orientation on top. If you walk into any professor's office, you see multiple angular unconformities. <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. Um, so he sat there and said, huh, interesting, because we have a lot of laws in geology, right? And so one of them uh, for sedimentary rocks is the, the law of original horizontality. This is the easiest one. It is exactly what it sounds like. And it states that sediments are deposited flat. Because gravity. Exactly. <laughs> um, so what was up with these? These aren't flat at all. And actually, they're not flat on two different levels. So therefore, this lower grayish sandstone shale sequence, which is Silurian in age, for those of you who know the geologic time scale, <laughs> had to have been <laughs> deposited first. And then it got tilted by some tectonic events. Next, the old red sandstone was deposited horizontally on top of those beds. But the old red isn't horizontal there now. So now both of these were later tilted again by another tectonic event. Right. So we're talking about maybe 50 degrees tilt or so initially, and then the old red deposition, and then another 30 degrees of tilt. Right. Exactly. So you've got two obviously different rock types separated from each other by this thing called an angular unconformity. Exactly. But that is not the only type of unconformity that there is. Uh, right. So there's there's three different types of unconformities. And as we said before, an unconformity is a bounding surface between two rock units. Um, so in the case of Hutton's unconformity at Sicker Point, it was between the Devonian and the Silurian, both sedimentary units. Um, but it's this bounding surface between two rock units, and it either represents non-deposition and or erosion. Right. And <laughs> <laughs> we're convolving more complicating factors in as we go here. Uh, right. Exactly. Um, so your trepidation was well noted, and it's non-deposition or erosion. Right. So you could either just stop putting sediment down. Mm-hmm. and then some tectonic process happens. Or you stop putting sediment down and wear away some of what's already there, or just start wearing it away faster than you're putting it down. Right, exactly. So the rocks are gone. How do you know? <laughs> How do you know which one yeah, of those I mean, happen? <laughs> you have to look at the... You have to take the context clues uh, from, <laughs> yes. from the surroundings and try to figure it out. Exactly. So oftentimes it's both of those things. You know, you're you're just eroding faster than you're depositing or it's the other ones. And this is really hard. And sedimentologists always have a lot of spend a lot of time just sort of trying to figure out what that history is. Um, but this time gap that's represented in the rock record here is called a hiatus. Right. Yeah. So we'll say that in forms of hiatus of deposition or it is an erosional feature, one of those two things. But we said right. this angular unconformity isn't the only type of unconformity. There's two other unconformities. So you've got angular, which are two different rocks in two different orientations on top of each other. And then the next one is a nonconformity. Which so this, is, this is just having too much free will with words. Uh, <laughs> We have an unconformity, and one type of unconformity is a nonconformity. I know. Uh, that's great. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, these are, this is wonderful. I always, always have a lot of fun on test with these words. Yeah. So this is when you've got sedimentary rocks that are sitting on top of an igneous or metamorphic basement rock, basement formation. Right. Exactly. Um, angular conformities are usually pretty obvious in the stratigraphic record, and nonconformities are outrageously obvious. <laughs> yes, it's it's a complete change in rock type. <laughs> right, exactly. So you, you have sediment sitting on top of rhyolite, and you're like, oh. Exactly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, which is contrary to the last type of unconformity, which is a disconformity. Oh. And this one's evil. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So this is sedimentary rock on sedimentary rock with yeah. little to no angular difference. Exactly. <laughs> um, so, yeah, this one can be quite hard to recognize. I mean, if you have a sandstone and a limestone and they don't grade into each other, it's a really sharp contact in between them, that's a pretty obvious disconformity or, you know, a shale and a sandstone. But if you have a sandstone and a siltstone, that's pretty hard to figure out sometimes. <laughs> Um, but, but that's how you get these. So imagine an ocean shoreline. Okay. Okay. Sitting there on the beach. Yep. Got your Mai Tai. Fabulous. Right. Uh, sea level falls. See you later. We're locking everything up in ice. Big, big drop. 50 meters, something like that. So where I'm sitting is no longer getting any water and really not much sediment from that water. Maybe a little bit of aeolian transport, but nothing really to speak of. Right. Exactly. You do that for a long time. There you go. Now, so we're done with that ice age. We're going to melt all the water. Sea level's going to rise again. What do you start to deposit? You start to deposit modern, in quotes, yeah. for that time, <laughs> sediments, on top of those sediments that have had almost no deposition and probably some erosion. Right, exactly. And, in that time. Yeah. And it's still the same sort of environment, so it's probably the, about the same type of sedimentary rock. I mean, obviously that can shift, but that can happen. So now you've got these two beach sands on top of each other with some sort of time gap, possibly eroding as well as non-depositional, and there's your disconformity. Yeah, and so as as a said person, what are some of the ways that you look for these? Mm, you don't. You just close your eyes and hope they don't exist. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, so disconformities, it's really all about the contact between two different units. Um, if you have stuff that grades naturally into each other, like a sandstone grading into a siltstone, or even a sandstone grading into a shale, um, as you do with the Dakota, which form the big hogbacks in the Boulder region... <laughs> Right. Um, so you can have that gradational boundary. And so now you know that that's, it may not be extremely constant deposition, but you don't have a big hiatus because you can see those two um, different environments sort of changing from one to the other. So it's all about the nature of the, of the bounding surface of the contacts between the two units. However, if you have, say, just like I said earlier, a sandstone and it's all sort of uniform and then it's pinaplaned off, and you've got shale on top, that's likely represents a disconformity. Right. Okay. Yeah. So that's that's the easy, the easiest way to recognize them. All right. So yeah. now we've we've recognized one of these three types, the angular, the nonconformity, or the disconformity. Mm-hmm. 
but now we need to figure out what they're telling us that's important about the past. Right, exactly, because there are three different types for a reason, <laughs> because they, they all three tell us different things. Um, and since we're going in that order, we can start with angular unconformities. And like we talked about with Sicker Point, angular unconformities help to tell us the timing of the relative timing, not the absolute timing, the relative timing of tectonic events that occurred in the area. Right. So these are things like tilting, faulting, all that. Right. Exactly. Anything that can change the orientation of your beds, anything at all, and then you deposit something on top of them, law of original horizontality, right. and then you tilt them again. <laughs> well, you don't even have to tilt them again. Your overlying beds could be flat. Um, but anything like that, that's going to start to tell you about the tectonic history. And you'll see this in intro geology tests all the time. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> These little sort of snapshots, kind of cross sections of tilted beds and untilted beds and unconformities. And then you always throw in a good igneous dike or something like that in there, too. And students have to basically unfold the rocks and tell it tells the geologic history of an area depositionally, if you have any igneous processes, and also, like we said, tectonically, faulting, large or small scale, either one of them, really. So it's right. kind of the first thing you do when you start to investigate a new location is to try to look at something like that. Well, and then, you know, you take a bunch of strike and dips, and you do your coordinate rotations, because, yes, geologists do need to know math. <laughs> yes, and... <laughs> You can figure out some really fascinating stuff. And this is something that structure people are very good at. Right, exactly. And they made up a really cool word, too, for that. Um, <laughs> of course they did. <laughs> <laughs> so you can pull up any, like, geologic quadrangle map. I mean, you can get a lot of these free online looking at the USGS website. And usually there's some cross-sections because that's what geologists do. You don't want to look at just the surface. You want to see what the structure is underneath. Um and so what a structural geologist would do a lot of times is a thing called a palinspastic reconstruction. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> and the levels of sophistication on this vary from using sophisticated pieces of computer software to putting a piece of string along the bed. Oh, the string works every time, my friend. Every time. On your cross-section, and yes, <laughs> yes, using it as a measuring tool. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> That's the quick and dirty palinspastic reconstruction. Right. Um, <laughs> so it sounds better than piece of string, <laughs> palinspastic. <laughs> That's right, exactly. Just because you use a piece of string. Um, <laughs> and basically is you're untying all the deformation. And so, like John just said, there's some pretty nasty software that you can do this with, too. Um but as you can imagine, unconformities kind of throw a wrench into this already time-consuming process. Because once you've got this lack of rocks for however, whoever knows how long, you know, that's kind of kind of messes it up a little bit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's not, not super fun. But angular unconformities are really good um, just for understanding that tectonic history. Because sometimes you know, you don't have any clue of what's happened like that. And now you know for sure you've had at least, you know, a couple of different tectonic events happening or tectonic quiescence, either one. And um, these unconformities are great for that. Yeah. Okay, so nonconformities was the next one. And we're generally looking at some pretty big gaps in time with right. these. Right. Um, so this is something that my students and I actually study. 
um, because these nonconformity surfaces, or unconformities in general, actually, especially if they get buried deep down, can act as fluid flow pathways for all kinds of great geological fluids. So like fluids associated with mountain building or fluids associated with, uh, say, igneous intrusions, stuff like this. Those fluids can flow along these unconformities and can remagnetize rocks. Right. And that's something that we've talked about somewhat already. (laughs) Yes. Yes, exactly. Uh, But that makes your life even more complicated. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, yes, it really does. And we're not going to talk a lot about that now. Um, but these nonconformities that my students and I are looking at right now, too, they they can represent really big time periods because we're talking about basement rocks, right? So igneous and metamorphic basement rocks that have sedimentary rocks on top of them. And right. so that's really – basement rocks are generally pretty old. And then it takes a while to get some sedimentary rocks on top. Um, What's even better is if these really old basement rocks sit around long enough, you can actually get them eroded themselves into some really great paleotopography. Yeah, so you have all kinds of weird bumpiness that you then drape these sediments on top of. And they're locally horizontal, but it is a regionally non-horizontal cape of stuff yes exactly (laughs) and so that can get uh (laughs) that can get pretty um pretty interesting because just like you said they can appear sort of non-horizontal so you've got to take that into account is this a tectonic thing or is it just you know two big mountains and you've got a lake in between them sort of thing um right so that makes for some interesting mapping later on as a lot of my intro geology students find out (laughs) It is cool, though, to be like, oh, I'm standing in what was a valley. Yes. Yep, exactly. When you finally, and I think this actually takes a while to figure out. It's easy to say you've got ancient topography. You fill it up, you know, with an encroaching sea and you deposit rocks. Okay, that's relatively easy to say. Recognizing it out in the wild <laughs> is an- is another thing. And when you finally grasp it, when you're standing on top of it, it's actually pretty powerful. It is. It, it definitely doesn't look like it does on the Geology 101 test. So. <laughs> yes, uh. Not even close. <laughs> geology is pretty easy if you're just doing it um, <laughs> in the intro level figures. But yeah, the rest life. of the time you're standing there arguing over what formation this is. <laughs> right, <laughs> exactly. Um, so that's the really neat thing about nonconformities. Um, and I've actually included a um, a little link in here to an intro geology lab about geologic time because it was really neat. It talks a lot about the nonconformities. If you're interested in looking at any of these sort of reconstructions that we subject our students to. Um, yes, <laughs> but I also wanted to use that as an example to talk about nonconformities and disconformities, and that's the stratigraphy of the Grand Canyon. Oh, the Grand Canyon, something that's still <laughs> under debate. <laughs> oh my goodness, it is, but it's probably one of the most well-studied sequences because it has, and I mean, I say that with no, it definitely is because it represents such a huge amount of Earth history. I mean, it goes back over a, like a billion years, doesn't it? It's even longer than that. Um, <laughs> so the Vishnu Schist, which is the basement rock there, is 1.7 billion years old. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and my favorite thing in the world is super old sedimentary rocks. Um, I love them. I think it's so cool that you could preserve 
a rock that's that old that isn't basement rock that shows you something about geological surface processes. And in some places, and this isn't everywhere in the Grand Canyon, but in some places, the Vishnu is overlain by the Grand Canyon Supergroup, which are sedimentary rocks that were deposited from 1.2 billion years to 740 million years ago. So still some pretty old stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you don't get billion-year-old sed rocks in very many places in the world. No. Um, so I think that's really cool. Yeah. So that's a big – it's – a really big, obviously, nonconformity there. Um, 500 million years. In some places, 1.2 billion years. Yeah. So that's that's a big hiatus. Uh. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, and then this sort of grades into a little, little sedimentary humor there. Um, oh. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> so we can continue to look at the stratigraphy of the Grand Canyon, which I've also included um, an article about, so you can look at the actual picture, um, because there's a number of disconformities within this section as well. Right. So these are the said on said stuff. Right. Exactly. Um, <laughs> there's just, it's so cool that huge nonconformity. But there are tons of disconformities there. And the, the big one is um, between sort of the Grand Canyon Supergroup, that one that we were just talking about. And then, and if you'll remember, 740 million years are the youngest rocks in the Grand Canyon Supergroup. And right. then they're overlain by the Tapetes group. Starts with the Tapete Sandstone. And that is a Cambrian Age rock. So there's a couple of million years there. Hmm. Yeah. All right. And, Mm-hmm. So still a still a pretty big gap, and one that is relatively easily to spot, right? Um, yes. Now that one's pretty easy to spot um, because you've got some, and the one above it um, also is pretty easy to spot. Um, billion year old sed rocks. A lot of stuff happens to a man. <laughs> like, yeah, they get pretty junky looking because <laughs> they've sat there through all these different geologic things happening to them, and the tapetes is really obvious sort of to spot and then above the tapetes which is a cambrian section is um the redwall limestone which is devonian and so that's a pretty easy disconformity to spot sandstone limestone right yeah (laughs) so let's let's go back to one of my earlier statements about time scales (laughs) fine (laughs) okay so you're depositing some sediment Mm-hmm. and there is a seasonal dry spell in which you are no longer flowing water and depositing sediment. Okay. And later that year, you begin depositing sediment again. Mm-hmm. Is that a disconformity? Of course it is. It matches the matches the definition of unconformity, right? It is a hiatus in sedimentation. Now, will we ever see it? God, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, if you were talking about, say, evaporites, you probably would. You can actually see seasonality in evaporites. Um, okay, true. Yeah, you can. Act- <laughs> you can even do um, geochemistry, and I've seen some work, which I don't know if ever panned out, that <laughs> this person got Permian Paleo daily temperatures. <laughs> Daily temperatures? Daily temperatures. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> I know. Ex- that that noise. But it's still interesting 
to think. Um, so something like that. Or uh, limnologists, people that study lakes. There's right. actually a very cyclic deposition cycle in lakes, which anyone that lives there in a lake probably knows too. And you can count the sedimentation layers just like you can tree rings. So sometimes you could tell, but say out on a river, I don't know. I don't know if you could tell that. Yeah. So, the, I mean, at a short enough time scale, there's lots of disconformity yes. everywhere. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> but in the geologic scheme of things, I think it's got to be a pretty decent sized gap for it to be preserved. It, it, it almost has to be, I mean, and th- this is me saying this just in my experience, I would think that it would have to be a change in environment, like not severe, but a pretty definite change in environment in terms of sedimentation processes environment is what I mean, in order right. to be able to easily see the disconformity. Well, because then you can look at things like bugs. Right. So that's that's an excellent point because paleontology helps a lot with these. So the people that study this stuff are called stratigraphers. They're looking at the strata, the rock strata. And paleontology helps a ton with these stratigraphic issues because if you have the same sort of environment and you have a big hiatus but you don't have a change in that environment type but you do have a change in what lives there maybe due to these climactic conditions you were just talking about right that's where your paleontologist comes in handy so they would be then biostratigraphers right Exactly. So they're looking at when certain bugs or, well, it's not just bugs. That's sort of the pejorative fossil name that people say. So when certain uh, organisms lived and where they would live. And being a biostratigrapher, man, you are in high demand, let me tell you. It's true. And it's something that I would be very poor at. <laughs> exactly. It is, it is an extremely, like, if you are a detail-oriented person... That's the job for you in paleontology. Yes. Yeah. And if you have a very good memorization bank. And that um. too. Mm-hmm. I could do that part, but the detailed uh, detailed stratigraphic, you know, looking at millimeters to try to find tiny little plankton versus another tiny plankton, I don't know if I could do that. Yeah, see, I think I could do the, the detail part okay, but man, the memorization, if I can't derive it, I'm hopeless. <laughs> Nope, that's how I trick everybody into thinking I'm smart. I'm just really good at memorizing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so then as another example of an unconformity, uh, we'll talk about where you were, which is the uh, creatively named (laughs) Great Unconformity. That's all in capitals, too, people. (laughs) (laughs) So I've written in the notes, the most famous of the unconformities, exclamation point. (laughs) (laughs) um so right the great unconformity so most geologists especially stratigraphers know the great unconformity um it's the surface between precambrian basement rock and phanerozoic sedimentary rocks i also i found when i was sort of writing this up um sometimes i guess people call hutton's unconformity the great unconformity i've never actually heard that in the normal parlance of geology no it also said that the Great Unconformity is sometimes called PALS Unconformity because it was first recognized from the Grand Canyon. Also never heard that, so. Me either. Sometimes I wonder yeah. where these Wikipedia 
<laughs> hey, I looked in literature, not Wikipedia. No, I love Wikipedia. <laughs> that's a lie. <laughs> it's exactly where that came from. So I don't know if that's really true. So take those with a grain of salt. But saying the great unconformity to a stratigrapher does mean something. Um, and that's what it means. These Precambrian basement rocks with Phanerozoic said rocks on top. And the reason it's the great unconformity is it's continent wide. Um, it extends all across North America, what was then Laurentia, but you also see it in other places. So Baltica, Gondwana, Siberia, and it's just sort of one of the most recognizable surfaces geologically in the world. Right. And so I think, doesn't the gap range a little bit different places? Oh, sure. It does. Um, so for example, and these are just <laughs> some of the areas where my students work, um, the Tapete Sandstone, what we were talking about earlier, um, is on the Vishnu Schist in Nevada, and that represents a gap of 1.2 billion years, right? Um, but some places like in Colorado, which I know you've been there on field trips before, um, you've yes. got yeah, <laughs> you've got the Pikes Peak Granite, which is 1.09 billion years, overlain by um, the Cambrian Sawatch Sandstone, which is like 550 or 60, I think, um, million years. So, I mean, it's still a pretty big gap. And that's what I want you yeah. to think about. Um, in terms of geologic time, we throw out all these numbers, but th in Colorado specifically, because I work there a lot, that's 500 million years. That hiatus right there at the Great Unconformity is the length of the entire Paleozoic. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that ridiculous? Like, w would you even think that? So that length of time that's gone, all the rocks that were either not deposited or eroded there in Colorado represent the length of time for basically nearly the rest of the rocks in Colorado. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, if you ever feel important, study geology. <laughs> yeah, it'll, it'll cut you down a notch. Yeah. Because, <laughs> um, you know, it's just such a small piece of time in the geologic record. Right. Uh, it's, uh, but it's huge on any other time scale. Exactly. So it's it's so interesting to me that, you know, I mean, everyone studies stuff in Colorado. I feel like it's like it's great, great natural laboratory for geology. But to think that that one unconformity, well, it's a nonconformity, <laughs> the great unconformity represents all of the Paleozoic, like all these rocks that are sitting there, that much has been eroded by all these processes that we know nothing about which is kind of mind-blowing yes <laughs> <laughs> so that's um that's why we look at them because they're really interesting and this great unconformity like we said it's really spatially great in extent um and what was neat about it so it represents when laurentia started to get infiltrated with these epicontinental seas so we were just this Lonely igneous craton hanging out there, and the sea level started to rise and inundate the land. And now we start to deposit some of the earliest sed rocks in many of these locations, and that's kind of cool. Yeah, so I'm I'm excited to go see some of these things again. I have my roadside geology of Colorado book, <laughs> excellent, uh, all ready to go. And there's going to be some more shows on this and lots of pictures. I think. Oh, I imagine. <laughs> and I'm just waiting for the day when you ship me a Pomeroy rock drill <laughs> and say, hey, can you, can you go just, <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's happening. It's happening. just sample this real quick for me. <laughs> yeah. Just, just grab this. In fact, just keep that rock drill and just run out when I need you to. 
Yeah. Man, that's a great idea. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Thanks, John. <laughs> yeah, you have to send a field assistant, though. Yeah, uh, fine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, so... I think that takes us into a very related, everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. Yay! <laughs> um, so I knew I couldn't top the spoons. <laughs> like, yes, and we actually had several listeners say, oh, if we knew that you hadn't done that yeah. one yet, yeah. we, we totally would have sent that to you. So yeah. sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah, assume we know nothing and send us all the, the funny ones, okay? <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, so I knew we couldn't top it. Not even close. So I didn't go for funny this week. I just went for interesting. <laughs> so this is the formation of the Great Unconformity as a trigger for the Cambrian Explosion by Peters and Gaines. Right. Um, and I didn't pick this just because the author's name is Shannon. Although that's her. <laughs> um, <laughs> so exactly. The Cambrian Explosion a lot of times we pick these stratigraphic boundaries. And if you haven't listened to the geologic time scale episode, you should, cause it's really good. Um, <laughs> but how we pick these boundaries is because something happens there and generally it's paleontological, right? <laughs> and so the difference between the pre-Cambrian in geologic history and the Cambrian is that animals got skeletons and this big explosion of life occurred all throughout the Cambrian. Yeah, so there's tons of biodiversity. We went from relatively simple and similar organisms to massively different, rapidly evolving families. Right, exactly. Um, and so they're actually saying that the geologic things that happened that produced what is now the Great Unconformity, so these processes that occurred that were erosional um, and therefore non-depositional, are responsible for this, which is kind of a neat idea. Right. So it's geology helping control life 542 million years ago. Right, exactly, which it probably still does now as well. Um, it's true. <laughs> but so we've got this big, great unconformity all across the world, and we've got this big explosion in animals, multi-celled animals and all kinds of new neat things that are happening. And it turns out that maybe they're related and it has to do with the geochemical process of weathering. And that's where you lost me. Oh, come on, John. You did geochemistry <laughs> for a while. <laughs> you know how I feel about this. <laughs> um, okay. So what we sort of alluded to just a minute ago is here in the Cambrian or what's happening at the great unconformity um, is you've got all of this granite hanging around, basically, all right? This really silica-rich basement rock. And right. then the ocean starts to come in about 540, 480 million years ago, depending on where you are, because that, that time gap is different in different places. And so we're starting to record, and we know this because of the sediments that are, that are deposited and preserved, you're starting to record the fact that sea level came up. Okay. You're with me there, right? I'm with you that sea level's coming up, and I know that that's going to do some some funny atmospheric interaction. Oh, yeah. We're not even going there. <laughs> I mean, sort of not going there. Um, <laughs> so sea levels are coming up. We know that's happening. But 
We also know that for a long time, you weren't depositing anything. So what were you doing? You were either not depositing or you were weathering. And it turns out when you weather these really silica-rich rocks, you do some weird stuff to, just like you said, the atmospheric chemistry and the ocean chemistry. Right. Yeah. So (laughs) you, see, you would start consuming CO2. Is that right. the when you're depositing? You're right, because you're you're precipitating carbonates, so you're pulling right. CO2 out of the atmosphere. Right, you're pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere, um, and you're also um, increasing oceanic alkalinity. And okay. also, as you weather these rocks, and remember, lots of half million year or more um, hiatus here. As you're weathering these rocks, the fresher the rock, the faster the rates of chemical weathering. So there's actually some empirical data on this um, saying that if you've got some old crappy rock hanging out (laughs) and you started to make regolith, which is just a fancy geologic term for soil, and you got some regolith on it, you're not going to actually weather that crappy basement rock very quickly because you've got all this junk on top of it. Right. But if you have super fresh granite, say you had a fault or something, and it exposed all this fresh granite, chemical weathering rates are actually up to three times higher on that fresh granite surface than something covered with regolith or just crappy old rock. Yeah, you've got lots of exposed surface area. You can get fluids in and out easily. Right. Yeah, I can exactly. see that. And so as you do that, as you're... Because this is, you know, half a million years of <laughs> erosion. You've got a lot of fresh granite surfaces. And so you start to change the chemical makeup of everything, atmospheres and the oceans. And they're saying that this taxonomic diversity is because of that extreme change in the chemical makeup of the things that these little critters were living in. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So you change you change the chemistry of the ocean. You make it more alkaline. You change some of the the ions that are floating around, and I could see how that gives critters new new building blocks. And um, right, they could do things like build a skeleton or build a shell. Uh, right. Exactly. Um, it's it's really it's a really cool study talking about this. Um, because. You know, I mean, you you sort of know silicate weathering is continental weathering. It's kind of something we sort of know, and you can look for these geochemical markers to talk about rates of weathering. But this is on a huge scale. I mean, this study, which was impressive, looked at data for 21,000 rock units from over 830 locations in North America. Compilation of lifetimes <laughs> of graduate student work. <laughs> Right, exactly. I mean, this is huge. And, I mean, there's a big name for this stratigraphically where these seas started, these epicontinental seas started coming in, and it's called the SOC sequence, S-A-U-K. And that's actually what we were looking at. I posted a picture on Twitter, and that was actually what we were looking at in Missouri this weekend with one of my students. And that was was pretty cool to sit there with your hand on that disconformity, nonconformity, and uh, think about that. One of the things they say is looking at this sock sequence, you see this massive increase in glauconite-rich siliclastic rocks, which glauconite is uh, fish poo, basically. 
I love it. I love that that's what you remember from sedimentology. <laughs> right. So, I mean, it's not fish poo anymore. Uh, it's a right. phyl- it's a um, but it forms in modern marine environments less than depths of less than 50 meters. And so it's it's yeah, fish poop that's changed into this phyllosilicate. It's pretty, it's green, it's a very indicative of a shallow marine environment. Yeah. And it's pretty easy to pick out. I mean, in the field mapping area where I did intro to field, there were some pretty glauconite-rich layers. Oh, man, there is. That's the best glauconite I've ever seen. You crack that rock open, and it's just full of these cool little green grains. And that's, yes. yeah, I, that's one of my <laughs> faves, yeah. <laughs> so this was this is just really cool. This ties together, you know, I think we're both sort of interested in these sort of inter interacting processes that most people might not put together you know you can't you can't take away all these interactive processes and so this is cool to look at silicate weathering which is something we look at all the time and the cambrian explosion which is something we look at all the time and try to tie the two together as one being responsible for the other well and it's just a good reminder that we're working in pretty much a closed system you know spaceship earth yeah Mm -hmm. so everything has a feedback (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, I thought that was really cool and a really neat idea. And yeah. All right. Well, I thought that was a fantastic fun paper. We have a couple more good ones queued up, some of them listener suggestions. But right. if you have one that you would like us to talk about or have any comments, we would love to hear them. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Well, you can send us those. Keep them coming. Show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. And we're on Twitter. At geo underscore Lehman is John. I am at Shannon Doolin. And together we are at don'tpanicgeo. And as always, come over to our swung.rocks chat room and get on that Don't Panic channel. We have some fun in there. Uh, We absolutely do. (laughs) (laughs) We spend too much time in there during the weekday. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no comment. Yes. (laughs) And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.